You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't apart. Hello and welcome to episode 184 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on the Biancicos of Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz. I'm Marie Haas, and with me today are Victoria Reynolds-Farmer and Sarah Thomas. Hey, Victoria and Sarah. Hello. Hi. So let's introduce ourselves for any listeners who are new to the program. Uh, Victoria, you can start us off. Sure. Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. I am one of the founders of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I got a PhD in Renaissance drama and gender and sexuality studies from Florida State University. Uh, I currently work for a market research firm as an engagement manager, and in my free time, I like to read and write and play the ukulele. Thanks, Victoria. And Sarah, what about you? Hi, everybody. I'm Sarah Thomas. I uh, have a PhD in uh, 18th century British literature from Florida State University. These days, I am teaching high school English, uh, British literature, and AP Lit, so I get to use my degree on the regular, which is pretty exciting. Uh, And when I am not teaching, I am chasing after my two dogs who are uh, trying to dig up all the moles in the backyard. And I'm actually in the process of recording the audiobook version of the book that I published last fall. So that's been exciting, getting my recording space set up and playing around with the sound equipment and whatnot. Well, congratulations on that. That is really exciting. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a fun ride. Uh, and for myself, I'm Marie Haas, regular panelist on the show, um, and I have a PhD in early modern literature, also from Florida State University, uh, and an MDiv with a focus on women's gender and sexuality studies. And I think that I first uh, ran into Sor Juana back in high school in Bolivia, um, and then again in the course of getting a Spanish undergraduate major. Uh, but I only encountered her then and mostly with her uh, most anthologized poem, the Redondilla that begins Hombres Necios or Foolish Men, which is strongly proto-feminist and it's one that like school children uh, have to learn a lot in uh, Latin America. And of course, I also encountered her reply to Sor Filotea, which is an epistolary autobiographical defense of her education for women. But today... Uh, we're looking at we're looking at some of Sor Juana's religious poetry, which I had not read until Sarah actually suggested it for this episode. Um, so before we get into some of our discussion of these poems, um, let me first explain uh, why Sor Juana, why an episode on her, and then we'll get into some of the background on the poetry that we're talking about today. 
So I've wanted to do an episode on Sor Juana for a while now because she's just such a huge figure in Mexican literature, and she's so fascinating. Um, and she's another literary nun, which is uh, always a figure that's fitting for this particular show. And also, of course, because I like any early modern women writers. And it's always worth revisiting and remembering our foremothers. And um, so I was so glad that Sarah suggested the Biancicos because these short popular pieces of religious verse are just this really interesting facet of Sor Juana's work. So the three of us read the Viancicos that are included in the anthology of Sor Juana's work translated by Alan S. Trueblood, and I'll uh, link uh, to the information on the book in the show notes. And we're focusing on four Viancicos celebrating the Virgin Mary and one celebrating St. Catherine. So uh, before we get into that discussion, for our knowing section, let's give a little background on Sor Juana and on these poems. Um, so Sor Juana, like I said, she's one of the greats of Mexican literature. She was born in 1648 at the Hacienda of San Miguel de near what is now Mexico City. She was the illegitimate daughter of Pedro Manuel de Aspaje and Isabel Ramirez, um, an American-born descendant of the Spanish colonizers. Uh, Juana Ramirez de Aspajes, how she was first known. Um, and she showed a really early thirst for learning and a talent for writing. And after she moved to the capital at 13, her relatives presented her at the viceregal court where she quickly became a court favorite. Yet she chose to take the veil in 1669, first joining a barefoot Carmelite order uh, just very briefly, and then quickly moving on to the more liberal convent of Santa Paula of the Order of San Jerónimo. One of her patronesses and supporters in her literary pursuits was the Condesa de Paredes, with whom many critics suggest perhaps a quasi-erotic or romantic relationship could be hinted at by Sor Juana's poetry. Um, Sor Juana was famous uh, in her lifetime far beyond the confines of the convent walls with frequent commissions of poetry and poetry publications that led to her being called the 10th muse in the Phoenix of Mexico. And she was interested in the indigenous cultures and languages of the area incorporating it into her poetry and plays uh, at some points and also accumulating a large collection of indigenous musical instruments. Sor Juana produced just a vast body of work, uh, poetry, both secular and religious, including a long epistemological dream poem, plays, songs, devotional exercises, a treatise on musical methods, which sadly is now lost, and uh, the prose autobiographical defense of women's education that I mentioned earlier, the uh, reply to Sor Filotea. And she died at the age of 46, nursing her fellow nuns during a plague. So she accomplished all of that, and it's just such a sadly brief lifetime. So that's a little bit on Sor Juana. Uh, Victoria, I know you have some background on these particular poems that you could provide us with. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the Viencico as a poetic form. Starting in the 15th century, uh, this Spanish poetic form um, 
has roughly two parts, sometimes uh, accompanied by an introduction, and they are an estrabio, which is a refrain, and several coplas, uh, which are stanzas. Um, those are ordered and repeated in various ways, but the most typical form is ABA, and often in triple meter. It developed as a secular genre um, for about a century, a century and a half, um, starting in the 15th century, and in the second half of the 16th century, religious vincico, like the ones we are talking about uh, today, were popularized. They're devotional, uh, they're often sung during uh, matins, during Catholic feasts, and uh, they continue in popularity for several hundred years uh, until their decline in the early 19th century. They're sometimes didactic uh, and were often used to help new converts understand their religion. Uh, typically, the matin service is structured in three nocturnes uh, with three readings and responsories. And so during these matins, you could hear up to nine uh, viencicos, typically. Oh, that's some great information. I did not know a lot of those facts about the Viencico. And it's uh, just so interesting to me that this is part of the liturgy itself. So I think of Sor Juana's poems being performed like as part of the church service. That's um, just tickles me, I guess. <laughs> um, so for the particular poems that we looked at, that we're looking at today, could you give us a little information on those, Sarah? Of course. Three of the four poems that we focused on for today's episode are uh, Viencicos that were written to celebrate the Feast of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which is, uh, for our listeners who might not be familiar with the uh, with the Feast of the Assumption, is uh, celebrated in, I believe, August, uh, right around August 15th-ish, and uh, celebrates uh, the... Uh, assumption or the taking of Mary body and soul into heaven uh, after her death since she uh, uh, since she uh, was not um, subject to the stain of original sin in you know according to Catholic teaching that um, since she was not subject to sin she did not have to suffer death or decay so um, so at the end of her life she was assumed body and soul into heaven so these are celebratory occasions um, mu uh, much of the music for uh, celebrations of the mass on this feast today will center around Mary around the lessons in her life uh, the lessons to be learned from her life the events of her life and so the first of the Viencicos that we read together is uh, we're going to refer to them by uh, probably by their first line uh, first lines um, is referred to as that shepherd lass and so this piece um, is part of a conversation between or about uh, a woman um, and a woman and her beloved, and it draws on language that is uh, that might be familiar to some of us from the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, um, and also draws on um, as the refrain. The refrain refers to Mary ascending to the skies, um, and the idea that uh, as she ascends to the skies, 
um, she's uh, taking all of us with her. Um, and so in a combination of language that again draws on uh, imagery of bridegroom and bride that um, talks again in language that uh, follows the Song of Songs, we see this uh, reference to Mary as uh, Mary leaving and uh, being assumed into heaven and leaving uh, leaving some humans leaving us on earth behind, but also in hopes that we can uh, join her uh, at the end of our days. Uh, the second of the Viencicos focused on the Feast of the Assumption um, is one that draws on some of the local um, local culture, local heritage um, that Marie you alluded to just a minute ago and uh, says the joyous Mexicans come forth as always loyal subjects ever prepared to applaud. Um, and this piece uh, draws on, I think, some prayer traditions such as the Memorare, which is a prayer to the uh, Blessed Virgin Mary, um, and also uh, draws on the idea of Mary as intercessor for uh, for those uh, for all the faithful, for those of us who are here. So there are references to her intercession, some references, I think, to her. Um, connection as uh, the new Rachel, some references that might echo the wedding at Cana, um, which is also a beautiful piece. Uh, the third of the Viencicos, uh, focused on the Feast of the Assumption, um, tells the story of uh, two Guinean queens who slip into a church at the sound of the sacristan's voice. And in uh, this Viencico, the verses uh, well, the refrain is um, in uh, African language, and uh, the verses themselves draw on can, um, draw on the uh, imagery of Mary as the handmaid of the Lord. Uh, references to uh, the fiat to the gospel of um, to the gospel of Luke and the Annunciation, and also there seem to be a few references possibly to Revelation, which I also thought were really cool. Um, and then the fourth of the Viencicos uh, is the one that is that was written for the Saint Day of Catherine of Alexandria. And this one uh, tells the story of a girl who, um, who, is speaking out and if everybody else in the audience would just hush up and listen to her she has important things to say and one of the things that i thought was really interesting about this one uh, was that i did a little bit of research into saint catherine of alexandria and that is in fact one of the things that happened in her life that she uh, converted to Christianity after having a vision of the Blessed Virgin Mary and the infant Jesus, and uh, eventually went to the emperor to challenge his cruelty and denounce it. And rather than being tortured initially, she was put to debate against 50 orators and philosophers and out-debated them all. In fact, several of them were so moved by the eloquence of her apologetics, of her defense of her faith, that they converted on the spot. Um, she was later uh, tortured uh, after she didn't win the debate. She was tortured for a while. She was offered marriage by the emperor, which she declined. Uh, she was supposed to be executed by the breaking wheel, but when she approached the wheel and touched it, the wheel shattered. So she ended up being beheaded instead. But this, uh, after reading a little bit about her biography, I think that this 
this Viancico, the verses in particular, are drawing on that moment in her life when she successfully debated 50 uh, philosophers and orators who are all men, and she was a teenage girl. Wow, thank you. That's such a clear description of these Viancicos. Um, gives us some good context for our discussion. Uh, so for moving on to our reading section then, um, I thought we might start off by talking more about the particulars of the treatment of Mary in these Viancicos. Um, and we can also address uh, the Catherine Viancico uh, as well. But looking at Mary particular, what is the effect particularly, what are, what are the effects of the, the form on the treatment of Mary? Um, or what did you notice that about uh, how Mary was described when you were reading these? I mean, for myself, uh, one thing that was interesting to me in some of these, particularly Mary and Viancicos, is that though they're celebrating Mary very hyperbolically at times, I think it, it sort of, uh, they sometimes make her a little more accessible or human. So like in Biancico 221 that begins that shepherd lass, uh, you have that conflation of Mary with the Shulamite of the Song of Songs that Sarah mentioned. And um, you have the emphasis on a country or pastoral setting for Mary as this kind of simple shepherdess. Um, and then you have the like simple village folk coming out at the end in a kind of hullabaloo to praise Mary and her assumption there. Uh, and the Tokotin, or that Nawadal um, song form that's used in Viancico 224 that begins in the True Blood anthology, uh, The Joyous Mexicans, that calls on Mary to remember suckling the Christ child, which is just a very kind of down-to-earth image. And then um, Viancico 258 uh, that begins at the sacristan's voice, um, has these two enslaved women singing about Mary as an enslaved woman using everyday vernacular language and connecting her praise with an everyday thing like uh, fireworks, like she's described as a rocket exploding in the sky. Um, so I, I felt like at some points these Viancicos were bringing Mary down to earth in a sense, uh, going along with like the popular culture aspect of the Viancico as a form. Um, what did you guys think? Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, there's a lot of humanity and a lot of embodiment here, um, which I, I did like. Uh, you mentioned the Song of Songs um, comparisons in the first Viancico. Uh, I would agree with that. Um, but in my notes, I wrote uh, Song of Songs meets the Dark Lady sonnets. I, I think partly because of that, there is a very like 16th century pastoral vibe. Um, I, I did not expect to see so many familiar things in these poems, um, literarily speaking, in terms of uh, form and illusion. But I, I also, though there's so much humanity and embodiment and familiar um, illusion, to me... Um, these poems felt very, um, very Catholic in their elevation and, um, and veneration of Mary. Um, I've, I've spoken a lot on this show about, 
the fact that Mary played a really large role in my own conversion to Catholicism, and I, I kind of always wanted her to mean more when I was a Protestant. So anytime I see kind of pictures of um, of Catholic Mary, of venerated Mary, um, now I, I feel really good about them. So I, I enjoyed the fact that you do get that elevation in these poems, even as you get um, the things that, as you put it, Marie, bring Mary down to earth. I would echo uh, some of what you just said, Victoria. I also, um, I was going in with uh, with uh, sort of an open mind in the sense that I didn't know much at all about Viencicos or about Sor Juana. And one of the things that I found really lovely and really reassuring, um, my 16th century verse is, uh, is a little bit rusty, but I am more familiar these days with some of the scripture references. And so, yes, especially the Song of Songs, some of the references that seem to be allusions to Revelation and uh, some of those other places that, that we see were really beautiful to me. And um, Marie, to to echo what you said about, um, and Victoria, what you all said about the embodiment of Mary and her her presentation as sort of down to earth something that seems very relatable to the audience, I think is, um, I think my AP students would say, uh, a compelling juxtaposition. Um, I'm not sure if it would go quite to paradox. Maybe y'all can help me out with that. Um, but the idea of the groundedness of the imagery in these poems seems to me to be a deliberate move to bring the feast of the assumption into um, into uh, something of a more understandable concept, if that makes sense. Um, that uh, the the comparison I'm thinking about in this very moment is is actually a lesson that I learned while I was still taking uh, dance lessons, and we were learning leaps in ballet class. And one of the things that our ballet teachers would tell us was that you have to be grounded in order to get the elevation you need. So you have to use the floor. You have to remain sort of, you have to start earthbound in order to get, you know, in order to get the airtime or the elevation that you need in order to be successful in your leaps. And there's something about that that I find um, echoed in these moments, particularly um, the refrain of um, that shepherd lass. So to the hill, to the hill, to the summit, hurry, shepherd lads fly. Mary is ascending the skies. Hurry, hurry, fly quick, fly quicker. Our lives, our souls, she takes with her, bears our wealth away in herself and leaves our village bereft. So this idea of like the the groundedness sort of relating to the humanity of the listeners, but at the same time, sort of underscoring also the, the embodied aspect of the assumption itself, if that makes any sense at all. Oh, yeah, and that's such a great image from dance there. Um, I can really imagine the congregations hearing this as part of uh, the liturgy, being able to uh, connect with Mary um, through the imagery used and through the uh, um, 
well, well the vernacular aspects of, of the, the, the Biancicos as well. Um, and they were really supposed to be a very appealing genre. And uh, I think if we can move on to talking more about that uh, cultural appeal of the genre and the polyvocality of the Biancicos, um, it's interesting to me that these are designed to be sung by more than one voice and to uh, sort of reach the entire congregation. And to that end, Sor Juana uh, really expands on that polyvocality by playing with multiculturalism and uh, multivocality in the in her Biancicos. She incorporates, like we saw at times, the Nahuatl language and dance forms. She uses what's called the habla de negros, a form of Spanish representing the speech of Ladinos or enslaved people of African descent who are conversant in Castilian. And some of her Biancicos, she uses that. Uh, we see that, for example, the habla de negros in Biancico uh, 258, the one beginning at the sacristan's voice, where you have the two Ladinas singing about the Virgin. Um, and it's also actually used in the bulk of Viancico 224, which begins here, the joyous Mexicans. That's just from the end of that Viancico. The whole first part of it, uh, which isn't included in the True Blood anthology, is a dialogue between two male Ladinos that, um, like a number of other Viancicos, emphasizes Mary's blackness in connection with the Shulamite. Um, so the, I, I've got sort of mixed feelings about Soriwana doing this. Like on the one hand, you can see this as like a kind of colonial appropriation and even mockery, like pressing the Nahuatl language and artistic forms into the service of uh, Catholic colonizers. Um, and with the habla de negros, you could get sort of a minstrel-esque burlesque, uh, carnivalesque kind of approach to depicting Ladinos. Um, and Sor Juana's Fiancicos have been read by some critics in that way. And, you know, with good reason, she is certainly a part of the colonizing Spanish society. She comes from an hacienda. She was herself given a black enslaved woman who was named Juana de San Jose in 1669. Um, on the other hand, some critics have also emphasized like subversive aspects of Sor Juana's habla de negros and of her like depiction of multiple cultures um, and peoples more generally, um, particularly with her depiction of Ladino characters as thinking subjects and people with souls, which is obviously not a very high bar, but it's not uh, nothing in its context. There's also a lot of discussion in the Viancicos of like freedom versus enslavement and of blackness and beauty. Um, and is this just like a Baroque love of contrast of uh, the juxtaposition that Sarah's talking about? Or is there something subversive to having two black enslaved characters singing in a cathedral liturgical setting about Mary as black and Mary as enslaved as uh, there's a lot of different ways we could go with this. I'm just really interested to, and what your thoughts were when you were reading these. Um, I, at first, I guess just because I, I didn't expect that, uh, the first time I read, I suppose it's, it's the, at the sacristan's voice, um, poem, I was kind of shocked by the dialect, um, because I didn't, um, expect it but then um 
when I kept reading the rest of the Biencicos and there was more, um, much more Black Madonna um, references, I kind of understood what they were doing as a whole more. Um, and the thing that I kept coming back to in terms of the polyvocality and the incorporation of not just different voices, but different tones of voice is um, the part of the mass where we are led in the responsorial psalm and we sing um, we sing a refrain along with the cantor um, and then the cantor sings verses and uh, the the other people in the mass sing um, the refrain several times through and it's this really beautiful back and forth um, that always really centers me in the beginning of the mass and I, I couldn't stop thinking of that when thinking of the polyvocality here. That's a really interesting point, Victoria. I hadn't thought about it quite in terms of of the responsorial psalm, although that absolutely makes sense. As soon as you said it, I thought to myself, oh, of course. Um, and there seems to, to me, there seems to be an opportunity for something welcoming in that, in that dialogue, in the, the balance between refrain and verse. Um, one of the other thoughts that I had um, actually thought about the, um, the use of music in worship more broadly and, and how, um, I, you know, I know that, that there are, um, at least, at least I know in, in the Catholic tradition, there are, uh, certainly, uh, worship preferences in terms of music. If there's something, uh, you know, whether somebody prefers music that's a little bit older or somebody is, uh, more, more familiar or more comfortable with, uh, more contemporary music settings for various parts of the mass. And one of the ways I started thinking about these Viencicos, particularly if they're sung, particularly if they're incorporated in worship is, uh, for me was a moment where I thought, oh, so the church has tried to incorporate, uh, this, I, you know, polyvocality, I think is what you're referring to it as Marie, but has tried for, uh, for a good bit of its history to acknowledge current musical modes of expression and to incorporate those into worship settings. And so when I started thinking about these Viencicos that way, um, I thought that these became sort of potentially beautiful ways of trying to, uh, you know, trying to acknowledge imagery or language that would resonate with the congregation while also pointing towards um, canonical or uh, canonical truths or didactic lessons. Mm, yeah, it feels like it has, would have a very uh, strong and broad appeal in the context um, and I also, I wasn't expecting a lot of the different ways of incorporating differences of language, not just of music um, into the Viencicos. I was surprised at how it, it was, uh, I guess, drawing in the contemporary uh, 
forms like you're talking about, Sarah, um, really creating that um, appeal that goes beyond, I, I think, just uh, an entertaining interlude in the liturgy. But I think there, there could be some kind of uh, subversive message to it for the time as well, especially when it comes to uh, treatment of enslaved people, um, that we have these enslaved characters uh, giving these theological messages as a part of the liturgy. And it, it's sort of allowed because of that broad vernacular appeal that the form um, calls for. So that, that was something I wasn't, I wasn't expecting to find in the Biancicos. Um, I was also wondering what, since Sor Juana is known as, as particularly for the pro-woman aspects of her works, what you guys thought about any of that kind of message going on here, or a lack of that kind of message, perhaps, either way, uh, where does any kind of pro-woman imagery come into, or message come into these Viancicos? whether it's just with the exaltation of Mary or anything else. Did you have any thoughts on that? What I liked about these poems, um, in addition to the things I've already mentioned about the complex vision of Mary, is I, I think there's a complex vision of, of womanhood in general. Um, we get sexuality and sensuality. We get worship. We get community we get embodiment, um, we get different tones of voice. I mean, I, I think all of us have all of those parts to ourselves. Um, all of us have, I think, multiple different voices that we speak in depending on uh, our mood, our context, the person we're talking to. Um, so the, the variety that you get in these poems felt very real to me because of that. Yeah, that's something that was interesting to me with all the allusions to Song of Songs that we've been talking about, because I wouldn't have immediately thought of connecting you know, Mary as a virgin with the Shulamite of Song of Songs, which is emphatically sort of not uh, not that kind of imagery. Um, but that turns up in multiple Viancicos, so you have that kind of duality and um, variety uh, going on there. Yeah, I found that really, uh, really fascinating also. Um, and, you know, and I, again, I would agree with a lot of what you, you both have, have already said that the, the fullness of Mary's presentation in these Viancicos is something that I think, um, when I read them helped to understand sort of the fullness of yet yeah, the fullness of who you know who Mary is, um, why we would celebrate the feast of the Assumption, and then uh, you know is part of um, recognizing her humanity in addition to recognizing the the honored the venerated place that she holds. Um, I also liked um 
liked what the Viencico for the Saint Day of Catherine of Alexandria uh, sort of played with um, in a way that to me seemed um, seemed a little bit more fun, if that makes sense, or more lighthearted yeah. in in its uh, you know in its uh, sort of pro woman message, um, you know about the girl who knew a lot. So they say, though she was female, if you just hush up, you'd hear my tale. I think is one of the stanzas. Um, and I liked the fact that this one sort of made a very pointed commentary that, you know, uh, let's see, one of the other quotes is that now you people are always saying, you know, that all girls do is spin. And so if you just hush up and not, not fuss. So, and then it continues on with the, again, the story of St. Catherine of Alexandria, uh, debating all of these philosophers and orators and how she was able to do those things. Um, I really liked, um, again, for its playfulness and its relatability in, in a way that, uh, that actually surprised me a little bit after reading all of the, all of the assumption focused Viencicos. Yeah. I love the moment in that St. Catherine Viencico where you have the devil being enraged that St. Catherine is more learned than he was and he prompts the persecutors, which of course that that's aligning uh, the devil with the uh, men in authority who can't abide an educated woman. Um, so you have some kind of autobiographical elements going on here. I can't help but think since uh, this set of Viencicos uh, that this comes from is among Sor Juana's final works. It's from 1691, just a few months after the reply to Sor Filotea. Um, and it's a particularly resonant uh, these St. Catherine Viencicos in the context of Sor Juana's own like final silencing. Uh, just a couple years later in 1694, the year before she died, she signed documents of abjuration. Uh, one of them signed in her own blood that in which she renounced humane letters. Um, so we have her sort of facing this kind of uh, persecution of an educated woman that she's speaking out against in this fiancico. And it's so fun to think of this being, again, performed in the church itself, uh, in the cathedral. Um, one critic, Natalie Underberg, calls these fiancicos in praise of St. Catherine some of the most avowedly feminist messages ever to be delivered in the context of a traditional Roman Catholic church service, which may be going a bit far, but it is certainly fun to think of it happening at that time, um, particularly in the context of Sor Juana's life. Did you have any thoughts on any of this, Victoria? Um, I hadn't I'm not familiar with that critic but that that's certainly a, a really interesting um, thought to to think about how um, how the that poem in particular pushes against um, typical mass order and I I do our typical mass content I think that that's probably true um, even though I I was saying I, I feel a lot of echoes of the mass in these poems um, so I, I think both of those things can, can probably be true. I know we're uh, 
a lot of what we're saying this entire episode is like, lots of things are happening all simultaneously, and that's great. So I guess I'm just saying that over again. <laughs> I think lots of things happening simultaneously uh, was part of the appeal of the VNC Coast themselves. So many people singing all over the place, so bringing in the hullabaloo of the street celebrations. Um, that's what these ended up being so so much more fun than I was thinking they would be. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and move on to our passing on section then, uh, part of the show where we give our recommendations for further reading, listening, or viewing. Um, Victoria, why don't you start us off? Sure. So I mentioned um, being struck by the depictions of the Black Madonna um, in these poems, so I wanted to recommend um, a novel that was my first kind of pop cultural introduction to devotion to the Black Madonna, um, the novel The Secret Life of Bees by Sue Monk Kidd, um, which I read in college, uh, and it's a really beautiful um, feminist novel about a young girl who is adopted in a certain way by this family of black women in the South who um, are devoted to the Black Madonna, and she finds this really beautiful female community um, outside of her own biological family um, who are fairly abusive, and she really is connected to this feminine strength uh, through their devotion, and it's a, a really lovely novel um, if you like um, kind of religiously syncretic literature or if you're looking for uh, a good depiction of a community of women, I would recommend it. Uh, the Secret Life of Bees by Sue Monk Kidd. Thanks for that, Victoria. What about you, Sarah? All right. I have two recommendations this time around. One of them is a repeat and the other one is uh, may sound familiar, but is one that takes a slightly new direction. Um, I would like to make a second rec recommendation, a second plug for uh, Brant Petrie's book, uh, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary, which uh, again, I mentioned my uh, Bible study just finished reading this book together and it goes through a number of the images uh, that are associated with the Blessed Virgin Mary. It incorporates some of the uh, Catholic Church's teachings about Mary, but also places those teachings about Mary within the context of um, of Jewish tradition. And so, what a you know first, second, third century Jewish uh, audience would have recognized in the presentation of Mary in scripture and um, the place that she holds within the story. So in light of the Viancica is focused on the, um, on the Feast of the Assumption, I make a second recommendation for that book. Um, and then the other thing I'm going to recommend this time around is another resource for learning a little bit more about uh, what exactly the Catholic Church is teaching in terms of the context that um, that Sorwana would be responding to in writing these Viencicos for this particular liturgical moment. And so that would be the Catechism in a Year podcast with Father Mike Schmitz. 
Um, it's the follow-up podcast to his Bible in a Year podcast that was uh, released a couple of years ago now. Um, but the Catechism in a Year, we're reading the Catechism of the Catholic Church in a Year. The episodes are standalone. Um, each one of them is about 15 minutes long and focuses on a handful of paragraphs in the catechism. And then he goes through and explains what exactly they mean and what those uh, ramifications are for listeners. So Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary and Catechism in a Year. Thanks, Sarah. That goes so well with um, these aspects of the depiction of Mary that we've been talking about here. Um, for myself, I'll go ahead and recommend just uh, two other works by Sor Juana that could um, take you further into her um, treatment of Mary and of gender. Uh, one is a Viancico that we didn't get into discussing today, but that shares aspects with a lot of the ones that we talked about. That's Viancico 281 in the traditional numbering. Uh, that begins in the True Blood translation, Black is the Bride, and in Spanish, Morenica la Esposa está, that really expands on that verse um, from Song of Songs about being uh, black and beautiful um, and treats Mary's um, Mary as a slave who, who uh, is... Uh, and the final stanza, um, a slave who humbles herself before uh, the angel at the Annunciation um, and who receives the sunlight of um, uh, of God's presence uh, overshadowing through the angel and that sort of the blackness that scorches the Shulamite's face and this uh, playing around with that in this Viancico. So if you're interested in those aspects of what we've been talking about, take a look at that Viancico. Um, and the other thing... Uh, that I wanted to suggest from Sor Juana's work is that long epistemological dream poem, um, Primero Sueño. It's a complicated poem of over 900 lines. That's uh, I'm suggesting it particularly because it's reminiscent in some ways of Dunn's anniversary poems, which we just discussed a couple episodes back. So it might be, um, if you were interested in that, uh, might be a good thing to read, to, uh, looking at how it shows the soul's journey and how it plays with gender and connection with the soul. So uh, that's the end of our episode for today, then. Uh, thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at CH Radio Network. And check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Victoria Reynolds-Farmer and Sarah Thomas, I'm Marie Haas. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss the number one ladies' detective agency. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.